Hi, I'm Meredith. And I'm Katie. And you're listening to I'm Not Scared, You're Scared. A horror movie podcast. If you are a fan of the show, please like and follow us on iTunes and Spotify and review us. It'll help spread the word. Also, you can follow us on Instagram at I'm Not Scared, You're Scared or email us at I'm Not Scared, You're Scared at gmail.com. The original. Long before I was even thought of. In an eye. In an eye. Yeah, it's actually the oldest. It has has now become the oldest movie we've ever discussed on the podcast, taking the reins from Meredith's beloved Rosemary's Baby, which came out in 68. Uh, Eight years later. Yep. So this is now the oldest movie we have ever reviewed, but it is it is seminal. Yes. Some might say. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And very uh, strange. Strange and unusual, but uh, kind of also the, a fitting final uh, installment for our secluded settings theme for this summer, because we are closing out our summer um, with this episode. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, if, if there's nothing more secluded than Bates Motel. Yeah, which I think I might want to revisit the show, maybe one day. Yeah. Uh, anyway, but before we dive into it... Um, I got to have a very fun weekend last weekend um, with some of my girlfriends. uh, All it's uh, five of us that all went to high school together, um, and we try to get together once a year. um, And you know, we're usually—I mean, it's it's regional. We uh, the furthest we've gone last uh, summer, we went to Palm Springs because it was we were all turning forty that year. but in the past, you know, we just go to like Arroyo Grande or San Luis Obispo or one um, time they came to San Francisco and stayed with me and we did fun stuff in the city. Um, this time was actually the second time that I have had them all to our um, vacation house in Arnold. Uh, but the first time we had done that was during COVID. And so we just hung out at the house the whole time um, because we couldn't. Not many options. Yeah. Yeah. We couldn't go out to dinner. We couldn't, you know, go and do stuff. So it was just about being together. Um, but this time, not only obviously were we able to, you know, go um, out and do things, but also since they had been the last time we had put in a hot tub. So it had uh, definitely elevated uh, the experience Leveled up a, little bit. a little bit. But yeah, so we um, on the first day we went and saw the Barbie movie together, um, which was amazing. And then um, went to Murphy's and did a little wine tasting, did some shopping, had a great meal. And then the next day went back to Murphy. It was it was just a it was a fun time. Yeah. I want to go one day. I would like to visit your, your place. Yes. I also want to visit that, um, the haunted hotel that I heard about. Yeah. So it's, it's right there on Main Street, um, Murphy's Hotel. It's one, if not the oldest, one of the oldest um, hotels in the country that's still operational. It was opened in like 18-something-something. Something. Um, yeah. And it's uh, reported to be ghosty. Um, 100% so soundly there probably and it's also across the street from a charming little uh, champagne uh, tasting room so (laughs) extra heavy Um, yeah so uh, you know they actually um, none of my friends uh, in this group listen to the podcast except Abby Mm -hmm. 
So shout out to Abby, who's also like low key, one of the funniest people I know. Like she and I actually um, in this group, we didn't really hang out in high school, um, but we had friends in common. And so as this group has like developed over the years, um, I've actually like spent time with her and realized that she's like fucking hysterical. Um, (laughs) Yeah. A little discovery and and all those lost years. (laughs) Yeah. But she does listen. So hello, Abby. And uh, yeah, that that's that's what's going on with me. What's new with you? Well, that's really fun. Um, well, I have not gone to my guild meetup yet. Um, Countdown is um, what is it? Oh, you're eleven hours from when you have to leave for the airport. I know. <laughs> so my guild is called the Lobster Squad. It's ridiculous, <laughs> and we know it. Mm-hmm. We embrace it, and then. So we call our like little get-togethers in the summer lobster fest. Yeah, <laughs> and um, should be really fun. We yeah, we have to leave for the airport at three in the morning, which I'm super stoked about. Oh, who wouldn't be? Oh my gosh. Um, but we did just come back from seeing Katie and I and her friend Tony as well. He was on the podcast a few times. Yep. Well. We went to go see Talk to Me, which. Uh, I'm not going to do spoilers or anything, obviously. No. It's, it's so, so new. Yeah, it just came out like a week ago. Yeah, but I mean, I I enjoyed it. I, I think it's pretty independent, or maybe it's just Australian filmmakers that are not super widely known. Yeah, not. like we wouldn't have seen as much of their stuff, but they may be better known there. Maybe, yeah. yeah. But I really enjoyed it. I thought it was pretty original and um, just very interesting. And yeah. I, I, I definitely want to watch it again. So I feel like Victor would hate it. Yes. Of ambiguity. Yeah. He hates ambiguity. He, he wants he wants conclusions. Yeah, but some of the the scary parts and the terror and the violence were um, really jarring. Shocking. Yeah. Yeah. So I was like, ooh. Yeah, I literally did cover my eyes at one point because I was like, I can't watch what this person is doing right now. Like, I can't see this. I just was like, oh, no. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I just gestured to Meredith to indicate the thing that I could not watch. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah remember that part. Well, some people have things about, you know. Certain parts of yeah. your body. Well, just extra violence in there. Like, yeah. Oh, you know, body, and you might not expect that um, with how this uh, movie's being, like, promoted. It, yeah. You know, it kind of, it's like a ghosty, spooky type thing. And so you might not yeah. be prepared for that level of, because obviously they can't show that stuff in the trailer, even if they wanted to. Yeah. Well, a lot of the violence in it remind me of, um, I mentioned earlier to Katie, Hereditary, mm-hmm. um, which we did talk about and spoiled the crap out of it. Oh, yeah. On this podcast. Yeah. But, um, we're only allowed to spoil the movie that we've declared we're here for today because that's what people de- decided to listen based on. Yeah. So, uh, I think it'd be fun if, if you like the scary stuff. Oh, for sure. Check it out. It's, yeah. It's pretty good. So, yeah. I, I enjoyed it. So, uh, then what else is going on? Not much. Just dealing with my messy house, getting ready for school to start in like less than... Oh my God. Yeah. Crying. Denial. Crying into my pillow every night that I've done nothing all summer to be any more prepared. Well, you haven't really have been able to. Yeah. You know? That's true. So, it's not your fault. I mean, I could have been, like, fucking lesson planning or, like, scheduling out my grammar units. or I know, right? Uh, but that's one of those things where you think about it and you're like, you know, that would only take a couple hours of real focused, concentrated work. So I don't need to worry about that too much. But it's like, man, like, mustering up a couple hours of concentrated work is 
seems a pretty daunting task right now. It's hard. Oh, you're fired. <laughs> my alarm just went off on my phone. No, so I, embarrassing. Thing where I'm like, oh, I put stuff off, put stuff off. I'm yeah. Like, if I just concentrate and uh, my desktop with no distractions, I can knock it out. I'm yeah, like, it really doesn't here. actually take that much time. It's just... Okay, I'm just like, oh, I'm so tired. <laughs> <laughs> that was exhausting. <laughs> I need a foot rub. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> my shoulders are tense. <laughs> Um, yeah, but I'm excited to talk about Psycho, which oh, yeah. you are doing the recap for. I sure did. How many pages is it? Um, actually, it's shorter um, than mine usually are, uh, but longer than I was expecting it to be. Um, because, you know, this is the first Hitchcock film that we've done, and his films are all about building suspense and building drama. Um, and so I kind of expected that there would be less action for me to report on and chronicle in my recap. But this movie is very dialogue heavy. Yes. And there's also a lot of like little subtle things that yeah. you have to notice. Right. As a viewer to yeah. put together and be like, oh, yeah. that's important for me to know. So it's not terrible, but... Um, <laughs> That's my question. Is it terrible? <laughs> <laughs> Is this terrible? Prepare me now. Um, and so one of the standout things, obviously, with this film, aside from it being uh, one of Alfred Hitchcock's like most well-known and most well-received films ever, is the cast. Um, Janet Lee as the... Um, she's the main female character, one of two... Um, and she's the the focus because she, you know, is part of all of the iconic scenes and everything. But the actress that plays her sister, Vera Miles, was also quite famous and is a very big part of the story. Um, and she's somewhere, uh, man who shot Liberty Valance is like my, I'm not a big John Wayne person, I've realized recently. Um, but that is one John Wayne movie I love. Um, I think so. I looked Yeah. She's she's as old as dirt. All right. Yeah. And then who wasn't old as dirt was Anthony Perkins, who played the main character of Norman Bates. I mean, and he is just, you know, this baby faced, precious, little, adorable, skinny boy thing. Um, So perfect for that role. I I love him. Yeah. Yeah. He's he was perfect. Honestly, I did not know much about him. And because we did this movie, I looked up the actor Anthony Mm -hmm. Perkins to see like about his life. And it was very interesting because I didn't really know. About him. I don't know anything about his his uh, life. He died. He passed away from AIDS. Oh. And also was um, closeted as well. And oh my. Rock Hudson maybe, but I'm not sure. I mean, I'm not like on the fly comparing him to that. Yeah. And, um, just like having relationships um, with other men, but they're committed relationships, and then trying to be fit into this like like Hollywood. Yeah. yeah. He is with a woman, but because he, he was married to a woman. Mm-hmm. And, um, it was really pretty scandalous, and I didn't really know that. So I yeah, I didn't either. Kind of interesting um, about this. this wow. Guy I was like, oh my gosh, interesting. That makes one of the my notes about um, the movie kind of even more illuminating. <laughs> um, and then. Uh, in addition, there's um, a character, a detective character, who's played by an actor named Martin Balsam, who has always looked so very, very familiar to me, but I never bothered to check why. And so um, this time I did. And he was juror number one in the 12 Angry Jurors film that Henry Fonda made. I love that movie. Yeah, which, like, basically he and Henry, Henry Fonda were the two main characters. Um, 
So, uh, yeah, like just a, a really standout cast. Um, also worth noting is that on the American Film Institutes, when they do their top 100 lists, um, their horror or suspense um, top 100 list is called 100 Years 100 Thrills. And this is number one. Number one on the AFI's top 100 for like thrilling movies. Yeah. And on their, they did another list of top 100 heroes and villains. So it's the top 50 heroes and the top 50 villains. Um, Norman Bates is actually number two. The villain? Yeah, villain. Do you know the number one villain? Darth Vader. Oh, okay. I was going to say Hannibal Lecter. <laughs> Ooh, was it uh, Hannibal Lecter? He was either number one or number three. He's, He's up there. Very, very. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So this is a recognizable, reputable, lauded, respected, beloved part of film history. Like it's we can't can't overstate that. Um, So the opening credits, um, you know, Hitchcock's opening credits were always like a big part of his filmmaking vision. um, And they always reflected in some way the um, the messages or the themes of the film. Um, With this one, we get it's the first instance of the iconic psycho music that's very recognizable. It's very tense and alarming. Like it just puts you on edge. It's not like a creepy, eerie. Oh, it's like you're in immediate peril right now. <laughs> um, and then the other thing is the the visuals are very geometric with the way that they print the names on the screen and they keep splitting. They split the names and then putting them back together and then split them apart again, which obviously then, you know, is kind of reflective of what you learn throughout the movie is going on in the story. So the actual film begins with an aerial view of a sprawling city that is identified as Phoenix, Arizona. And then it gives us the date, Friday, December the 11th, 2.43 p.m. So very precise. Um, And it closes in on a tall building, goes to a particular window. And inside we find the closing minutes of a lunchtime tryst between Marion Crane, um, our main character and Janet Leigh's character, and her out-of-town lover, Sam. And it's funny that their, like, relationship is supposed to be, like, kind of scandalous, even though, like, neither of them are married, but they, like, have to have these, like, meet in a hotel at lunchtime. It's like, all right, what's going on? Um, They debate the future of their relationship. Does she, like, live with her mom? No, uh, she, it's kind of unclear if she lives with her sister or if it's just that her sister's there, but her mom is never mentioned. Well, she does say, like, I want you to come meet my mom, yada, yada. No, it's about coming to have um, dinner w- while my sister helps me broil a steak. Oh, uh, okay. So yeah. Probably dead. Probably dead. Oh, she says um, my mother's picture on the mantle. That's where she mentions her mom. Yeah. So she might be dead. I would say she might be dead. She's probably her picture next to her urn. Um, <laughs> So, yeah, they're talking about their their future um, and then eventually Marion leaves, heading back to work um, and the destiny of their relationship is still uncertain. Uh, She hurries back into the real estate office where she works just before her boss returns from lunching with a smarmy client um, who brags about buying a house for his daughter's wedding gift with forty thousand dollars in cash. Um, the boss directs Marion to put the 40000 in the safe deposit box at the bank for the weekend because it's too much cash to have in the office. Well, I looked at the equivalent, modern-day equivalent. It's uh, $400,000. No, it's actually like 181000 They changed it to 400000 to modernize it for the remake, but I don't... It's not... Oh, well, I just did the thing, the comparing. Really? Um, yeah. Because the thing that I read said it said that they changed it to four hundred thousand for the remake, but the actual value is like one hundred eighty-one thousand. Oh. Well, I don't know. I just get Google nineteen sixty money to yeah today. That that's kind of crazy that it's just times ten. I guess that we just live sad lives. <laughs> <laughs> and inflated lives. I think 
We certainly do. It's a lot of cash. Yeah. So, um, the her boss gives her permission to go home for the day after taking the cash to the safe deposit at the bank. But instead, Marion goes home and packs her bags, having decided to skip town with the money and go see Sam. Um, she's driving out of town and at a stoplight, her boss is crossing the street in front of her with the client and like looks at her and has said, looking understandably puzzled. He goes, Whoa, whoa, what? Whoa, what? <laughs> I thought you had a headache. She said, Ouch, my head. <laughs> Why are you driving across town? You're a woman eating across the house <laughs> <laughs> who let you out um so marion continues out of town driving into the night and next we see her pulled over on the side of an empty highway a cop pulls over to check on the car and finds her sleeping um she you know is startled awake and her guilty conscience is apparent as she tries to play it cool with the cop um he does let her go but then seems to be following her um all of the driving scenes are like uh, it's very um memorable how they're shot like it's just a direct straight on image of like her behind the wheel and it's always accompanied by the classic theme music and then at repeated points during the movie you're hearing like her her thoughts like imagining what people are saying about like the situation in the scenario for real I'm, like, <laughs> I'm always arguing with someone in my head oh my god why did they say that ah. um so uh, later she arrives in Los Angeles and goes to a dealership to switch out her car, which, you know, she's probably because like, uh, she's on the lamb now, essentially. Um, but while she hurriedly makes the arrangements, she is watching the cop watching her from across the street. So she's not fooling anybody with this car trade out because the cop that has been following her just watched her trade for a different car. Yeah. He, and he's watching her the whole time. Yeah. Like, You're suspicious. And yep. she's like, bye. <laughs> so as she drives away from the dealership, she's anxiously imagining the questions the cop might ask the car salesman as well as the conversations back at the office um, that might occur when she doesn't show up to work on Monday and the cash is discovered missing so like all of these are her anxieties about what's going to happen as a result of her you know taking this uh, illegal journey (laughs) yeah she's um she's definitely kind of not a super perfect plan no 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 and she's on edge big time yeah rightly so you're just like on the fly gonna just like yeah. Take some cash and hope it works out. I think I'm just going to become a major, a grand larceny kind of person. And like back in 1960, you're like, well, I live in Phoenix, but if I take the money and go to California, no one will find me. She's not wrong. I mean, be like a John List, like, yeah, that's true. Like, drop out of sight. And, it's the Wild West out there. Years later, like, <laughs> what? Just- I'm married to who? Um, so after a while, it's dark, the drive turns, turns a stormy and Marion gets off the highway and glimpses through the rain, the neon sign for the Bates Motel. Dun, dun, dun. Um, she finds no one in the office, but looking up toward the house on the adjacent hill, she sees a woman's shadow cross an upstairs window. Uh, she honks the car horn until a young man hurries down from the house. She registers at the motel as Marie Samuels from Los Angeles, um, and the man gives her cabin number one. Uh, he's charmingly awkward, and he gives her his name as Norman Bates, and he invites her to dinner up at the house, which she um, she accepts. Um, after he leaves to prepare, she hides the cash by folding it up in the LA Times and putting it on the nightstand. Uh, but then she hears a shouted argument between Norman and a woman's voice coming down from the house. Uh, shortly after that, Norman returns with the food and Marion remarks that she'd caused him some trouble. And he replies that his mother is not quite herself today. Yeah. And Marion's like, don't I know it? <laughs> yeah, I, I think, well, never mind. 
it's just so jarring how perfectly she can hear the mom like yelling. Oh yeah. Out the window. Yeah, it's it's very uh very far fetched. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, so the two go into the office to eat. Um, actually in the parlor behind the office that is filled with taxidermied birds, um, which she learns is Norman's hobby. They have an intimate chat about his life. Like they get real personal real fast. Um, during which we get the uh very memorable quote: "A boy's best friend is his mother." Mm-hmm. Which going back to our American Film Institute on their list of top 100 quotes of all time. This is number 56. I love that quote. A so boy's cute. best friend is his mother. I'd be like, oh my God. You see her like pulling at her collar like, eee. This is normal. This is normal. It's, it's the like, big gritting teeth emoji. Um, and then he describes his mother as ill. Uh, he actually, another quote that I wrote down, cause this is like a very, like I think dialogue, um, heavy scene where it reveals like basically the entirety of Norman's character. Um, and also the, um, the connection between the two of them and, um, you know, kind of obviously Marion's very, um, uh, cagey, like she's not volunteering information about herself really, but she's definitely like connecting with some of the things that he's saying and she's showing compassion to him. And, um, so it's a, it's a lengthy, um, conversation that they have that is kind of, you know, it's important for their character development. Um, and one of the things that Norman says is we're all in our private traps clamped in them and none of us can ever get out. And so he, you know, is describing his situation with his mother, but then for Marion, it's resonating because then she responds by saying like, sometimes we purpose step into them and so she's like looking at her own situation her relationship with Sam her choice to steal the money so there's like a real connection um, and like a lot of humanity uh, for both of their characters in the scene that's like really important to give the story like legitimacy really mm-hmm. um, so Marion encourages him to stand up to his mother um, but when she mentions the possibility of putting her in an institution he gets a little pissed um, and in, toward the end of this scene, we also get the quote, we all go a little mad sometimes, which I was surprised was um, it wasn't on the AFI list, but it was quoted in Scream, which is even better, in my opinion. Yeah. 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 I'm, I'm all a flutter. <laughs> so by the end of their visit, Marion has made up her mind that she's actually going to go back to Phoenix and try to undo her mistake. And so she says goodnight. So she's going to get up early. She has a long drive back to Phoenix. Yeah, to sort of fix what she broke. Exactly, exactly. She says, I stepped in a trap back there and I'm going to see if I can get myself out. Yeah, I, I went crazy and made some... <laughs> right. I did go a little mad. I was a little mad. Well, yeah, because she says that he's, he, when he said we all go a little mad sometimes and she goes like something like sometimes it only takes once mm-hmm. or it only takes one time. Yeah. Um, so after Marion returns to her room, we see Norman take down a frame from the wall in his parlor to reveal a peephole that looks into cabin one. And you're like, oh, no, because up at that point, like you're, you know, feeling kind of compassionate toward him. Um, but he only he watches her undress for just a moment and then he replaces the frame. And because it's 1960, like she takes her blouse off. So he sees her in her bra and slip. And that's basically it. Yeah. Really pointy, 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 pointy bra. Uh-huh. Um, but he, then he hangs the frame back up um, and then he seems suddenly both angry and resolute and returns purposefully to the house, but then loses steam just before charging up the stairs and instead sits dejectedly at the kitchen table. So it almost seems like he had a moment where he's like, I'm going to tell her off. But then he's like, oh, no, maybe I won't. I'm, <laughs> I'm going to sit here. and Ovaltine. <laughs> Um, in her room, Marion tallies the money she'd already spent from the 40000 but and then she tears up the paper and flushes it down the toilet before getting in the shower. Mm. 
So we're in the shower. And what red-blooded American doesn't know about the psycho shower scene? It's, um, I mean, we use the word iconic a lot on this podcast. But this is like... One of the few, yeah, like this, yeah. There, there's really nothing we've ever discussed, I think, that better uh, defines iconic than this this scene. Oh, oh, yeah. Everywhere. The Simpsons. <laughs> the Simpsons did it. Um, so basically, like, a, you know, it should be it's probably pretty familiar to a lot of people. But um, while she bathes, a shadow approaches on the other side of the curtain, then tears the curtain aside. The person is shown in silhouette. Uh, so we cannot see their face, but we see that they have gray hair and like an old lady hairstyle. And over a house coat, too. Kind of like yeah. Lady. Yeah. So Marion whirls around, she screams, and then she is brutally stabbed over and over again. Blood spatters in the running water, and after the attacker leaves, Marion slowly slips down the wall, grabbing at the curtain in her last moments of life and pulling it off of the curtain rings and down on top of her as she collapses forward over the edge of the tub. And so, like, the the camera work in this scene is, I think, what has made it so significant. Um, like the angles, the um, the quick shots and close ups and um, just the way the whole thing is edited together with the sound effects, um, you know, cutting from the blade to her face to being shot from above from a close up to her, you know, navel being slashed and like all these things. And you really don't ever see any wounds inflicted on her body. Um, you just see, and you really only see a very small amount of blood run into the water and down the drain. So it is not gory at all. But the way that it was shot and edited together is is shocking, yeah. especially when you think about for that time period. Definitely. I read about um, that. It was like over 100 edits. I bet. Scene. Yeah. And I was like, that's that's insane. Because it's it, it's like 20 seconds long. Yeah. yeah. Um, like It's just masterful. Yeah. It's just how the right. Just. um your mind makes that more of what you saw. Than exactly. You saw. And you're like, oh my gosh, that's yeah. crazy. But then you're like, wait, what did I actually see? Mm-hmm. And that that's the key for so much of Hitchcock's work mm-hmm. is, yeah. is he's just setting you up for your imagination and your own ideas to fill in either what he can't show you mm-hmm. or what he's not going to show you. He's going to leave it on you, like make you do the work, love. which you do love. Mm-hmm. You, you like a filmmaker to treat you like an intelligent person who's capable of, of expanding on what they're giving you for your entertainment experience. Yeah. So um, at the end of this, an extreme close up of Marion's eye spirals out to a shot of her dead face pressed against the tile floor. And then the camera pans out from the bathroom across the bedroom to the newspaper containing the cash that's laying on the nightstand. Um, so then we hear Norman scream in surprise from the house, like, mother, no, oh, no, mother. And he rushes down from the house and finds Marion's body. Um, I described him as dismayed but calm. Uh, he sets about handling the situation. He moves Marion's body onto the shower curtain. He mops up the bathroom. He wraps her body and places it in the trunk of her own car. Uh, he gathers her things from around the room and adds her suitcase to the trunk, along with the mop and bucket he used to clean up. And at the last minute, he does spot the L.A. Times on the nightstand and throws that in the trunk, too, before driving the car out to a handy nearby bog. Um, that seems to be like just immediately behind the hotel um, and sinks the car under the water. Um, and there is one moment I absolutely, this is like this. I don't know if it was meant to be comedic or not, but like, you know, he's he's pushed the car into the water and it's slowly sinking. 
And he's standing there like chewing or like snacking on something. Right. And it's cutting back and forth between his face and the car going underwater. And then the car, when like most it's like whole roof is still exposed, all of a sudden stops sinking. Mm -hmm. And then it cuts back to him and he gets this kind of like, oh, and then he like looks from side to side. Like, is anybody looking or whatever? Like, oh, he has like this oh shit moment that is just comical. And then the car starts sinking again and then goes all the way under the water. And he's like, oh, phew. (laughs) Well, see you later. <laughs> um, so now we're off at Sam's hardware store. He's writing Marion a letter when her sister Lila arrives and she's looking for her. Their conversation's being watched by a private investigator whose name is Arbogast, who soon interrupts them. And then the three of them dialogue about Marion's possible whereabouts, uh, leading to a montage of Arbogast interviewing people all around town before ending up at the, you guessed it, the Bates Motel. Mm-hmm. Um, Norman is very convincing in his ignorance um, about, you know, like, oh, no, never seen the girl. We haven't had any guests in months. Some candy corn. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> there hasn't been a girl around here for 25 years. <laughs> Just, Karen. Just a little bit. Um, but then Arbogast catches him in one lie, uh, and then he finds Marion's signature in the book, and even though she's written a different name, he matches the handwriting. Um, so then Norman admits that she was there, but he's way less convincing with his second story of like, oh, yeah, no, I just forgot. Yeah, she was oh. here, and and then she left. Sure, no, sure. yeah, Oh, yeah, totally. This isn't a very good picture of her. How was I supposed to know? <laughs> I remember her having a mustache. <laughs> and a top hat and a monocle. <laughs> Damn it. He was also here. Um, And this this line, I was dying. I like when I first, you know, I've seen this movie before I rewatched it to write these notes, maybe four or five times over the years. Not not a ton, but, you know, several. And um, I had never this line had never really uh, landed with me before. But basically, the detective Arbogast is like saying how he doesn't really believe the story, like the whole thing doesn't really add up. And what he says if, is, if it doesn't gel, it isn't aspic. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, oh my fucking, did he just say aspic? That makes me think. Uh, <laughs> Julia Child? <laughs> my grandmother. Uh-huh. We actually called grandmother. Yeah. She made me have called yeah, while she was making her aspic. Yeah, and I was like, oh, aspics. We always had aspics, either like a fruity kind. Yeah. Or a meat kind. Like a vegetable. It was like a tomato-y. Yeah. Aspect. Mixed with gelatin. Who wouldn't love it? Yeah, we had them every year for uh, years. And I'd be everything like, I just want something sugary because there was never any like treats. Right. So I would eat like the fruity aspic. <laughs> I think that was a mistake. Oh my god. <laughs> I, cranberry uh, uh-huh. and Yeah. And I was like, aspic. Oh <laughs> I mean, to be fair, it's no different than like jello. It just was like the precursor where you had gelatin and you had to mix it with the things that you wanted to flavor it as. But it was just, it's just like kind of hilarious that this has brought up this childhood trauma of yours. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was 100% thinking of my grandma. When I saw that part. I was like, oh. <laughs> Grandmother. Grandmother. Um, okay. I have to take out the aspects. Oof. Take it out for like turkey dinner and stuff. Of course. Yeah. Smear the aspic right on that turkey. Right in the trash. Um, So uh, outside the motel office, Arbogast looks up at the house and he sees the silhouette of a woman in the window, Um, not just sitting there. Um, 
Yeah. No. Well, no, I was saying she was moving around the first time when um, Marion saw her in the window the first time. This time she's not moving. She's just sitting there. Yeah. Um, Norman get because Norman is with Arbogast right now. Um, so Norman gets angry again, like we see his temper kind of flare again, like it did when Marion said he should put his mother in an institution because Arbogast suggests that Marion might have like tried to fool him or trick him into hiding her. Um, and Norman says in his like, you know, kind of irritability, she might have fooled me, but she didn't fool my mother. And so Arbogast is like, oh, so now you say your mother's met Marion. Well, I guess I need to talk to her, too. Um, But of course, Norman is like, absolutely not. She's not well. You can't see her. Um, And he's had enough at this point. He asks Arbogast to leave, which he does. But then after checking in by payphone with Sam and Lila and kind of telling him what he found out and what his suspicions remain, um, Arbogast returns to the motel. Uh, Not finding Norman anywhere at the motel, he pokes around the office a little bit and then heads up to the house. Um, he climbs the stairs in the house and we get a view like so at the, the it's this um, perspective of the upstairs landing um, at the top of the stairs. And we're looking at it from directly above, like uh, not at an angle, but just like straight down on this landing. And um, so we see him uh, getting to the top of the stairs and a gray the gray haired figure rushes out of one of the rooms with a knife and slashes at his face since we see the one like wound appear on his face and he falls to the bottom of the stairs um, and then the figure continues like follows him down the stairs and continues the attack stabbing him until the scene fades out yeah. so mother strikes again oh no mother she's a real bitch <laughs> she really is actually Um, So back at the hardware store, Lila is impatient, waiting for Arbogast to call again. And she convinces Sam to go out to the motel like she wants to go too, But Sam's like, no, no, none of that. (laughs) Uh, You stay here, little lady. I'll go out. Um, And uh, so Sam heads out to the motel where Norman is busy sinking another car in the bog, (laughs) as one does. (laughs) Um. But, you know, Sam walks around, so he doesn't find Norman. He doesn't find anybody because Norman's, you know, out at the bog. And so um, Sam returns to Lila at the hardware store and reports that he didn't find Arbogast or Norman at the hotel. So they decide to rouse the sheriff from his bed. So we get the, you know, the old small town sheriff with his bathrobe and his wife and her pin curls. Um, so Sam and Lila fill him in on what's gone, what's been going on. And when they mention Mrs. Bates, the sheriff's wife looks at them and goes, oh, Norman took a wife. Uh, and Sam's like, you know, no, his mother. Then they get this kind of funny look on their face. Um, Lila, I mean, she's just like a, a dog with a bone on this. Like she's not, you know, going to give up on finding her sister. Um, and she convinces um, them to call Norman at the, at the motel. And he tells the sheriff that Arbogast was there, but then he left and he never came back. Um, so after hanging up the phone, the sheriff delivers the news to Lila and Sam that Norman's mother has been dead for 10 years. Mm-hmm. And they're like, whoa, whoa, what? Um, He's like, let it go. Let's go to church. Bye. <laughs> um, and he uh, references a murder-suicide where she poisoned her lover when she found out that he was married and then poisoned herself. Um, but Sam and Lila are still like, nah, if I get it, like Sam's like, I saw a woman in the window like that, you know, she's there. Yeah. And then the, and the sheriff goes, well, if Mrs. Bates, then who's buried out in the cemetery? Hmm? Um. So we're back at the house now. <laughs> aspic. It's a coffin full of aspic. <laughs> Ew, 
it's so jiggly. Why? Um, so at the house, out of an abundance of caution, Norman moves his mother to the fruit cellar to hide. And we're um, we're hearing them argue. Uh, we hear, you know, Norman's voice and his mother's voice. We're not seeing the argument take place. But she's like, you're not putting me down there again. Um, and Norman is concerned and says, you know, no, they'll find you. And so we think now, you know, if we're just along for the ride here with no um, premonitions of what what is actually going on here, we think, OK, so she wasn't dead and Norman's been hiding her and so now he's wants to put her because you know and she's this killing psychopath and so now he's gonna hide her in the fruit cellar because he thinks someone's coming back um and then we're back to that that completely um aerial view of that upstairs um landing that we saw earlier when arbogast was attacked and seeing um norman walking out of the same bedroom carrying the gray-haired figure uh from the upstairs room and down the stairs well, actually, what, once they come into camera angle, she doesn't speak. Neither of them speak, um, which is, you know, with something that if, you know, you were a Meredith watching this movie back in 1960, you would have already figured out why. I may have been ignorant. <laughs> well, yeah, you were you were negative 23 years old. So, <laughs> yeah. um, so the next scene is um, the. Uh, Lila and Sam go and see the sheriff and his wife when they're coming out of church. Um, and sheriff says that he went to the motel before church and found nothing. Um, Lila and Sam are not satisfied by this report and they head out there themselves. Uh, they register as a couple and Norman gives them cabin number 10. Uh, but they sneak into cabin number one and start searching. And Lila finds one of the scraps of Marion's paper tallying the money. Um, so she's determined to talk to Mrs. Bates. So their plan is Sam goes and finds Norman to keep him occupied. Uh, Lila goes up to the house and explores an upstairs bedroom that I described as an unpleasant dent in the bed. Uh, no, <laughs> You're like, ew, what's wrong with this mattress? Um, Back then, everyone slept on hay. <laughs> and they did not shift at all in their sleep. They just their life. Yep. Uh, There's also a bunch of big dowdy dresses in the armoire. Um, She also finds a child's bedroom um, with like toys and a small bed and everything. Um, But down at the motel, Norman's chat with Sam is turning unpleasant because Sam is is starting to get kind of accusing. um, And he implies that Norman was involved with Marion's disappearance. um, And that once he mentions like Marion in that situation, all of a sudden Norman realizes what's going on and that Lila has gone to the house. So Norman knocks Sam out and he rushes up to the house. Lila has come back downstairs and she sees him coming through the window and she hides and in the process of hiding she discovers the door to the fruit cellar mm-hmm. um, so she goes down and she comes upon the gray haired figure seated facing away from her and when she approaches it and like touches it on the show she's like Mrs. Bates um, you know the chair slowly spins around revealing a mummified corpse mm-hmm. dun 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 so Lila like screams and flails her arms behind her hitting the bare light bulb above her in her panic so so then we get the like dramatic effect of the light swinging back and forth as Norman appears in the doorway wearing a floral dress and a hastily applied gray wig <laughs> and, and wielding his knife. <laughs> and so now like this would be the moment that anybody who you know is seeing this for the first time in 1960 and hasn't figured it out that they're like oh 
my God. Like, this is the big revelation that it was Norman the whole time. His mother is dead. Um, And then people are like, I got to go back and watch that again. Like us with the sixth sense. Like, I got to see it a second time now that I know. Um, But luckily, Sam appears behind Norman and overpowers him. So Lila is, is not harmed. Um, so because the, the final scene is at the courthouse um, and we get this lengthy speech from the psychiatrist who has questioned Norman. He reports that he got the whole story, but not from Norman, from Norman's mother. He says that the split personality has to- switched totally over to mother, that Norman does not exist anymore. Only mother exists. Uh, he, the psychiatrist confirms that Marion and Arbogast were both killed um, and also that Norman killed his mother and her lover. It wasn't a murder suicide between them um but then after committing those murders um norman in an effort to erase the crime in his own mind he stole her corpse and kept her quote unquote alive um by you know starting to speak for her and then ultimately dress like her and this is the part that's really interesting with what you were sharing about um you know anthony perkins having to keep his his lifestyle and his real identity a secret in that um time period because there's the the line about like some other random guy who's in the office says oh so he's a transvestite because he put on his mother's dress and the the psychiatrist gives kind of like a very like I I hesitate to use the word woke response, but he was just kind of like, no, dumbass, like a transvestite is somebody who gets like a sexual gratification out of dress. It's like, well, first of all, we don't use that word anymore. Um, But uh, he's like very clear that like, no, it had nothing to do with that. Like he was putting these dresses on to become mother. That doesn't that's not what being a transvestite is. And I kind of wanted him to just go over and like slap the guy across the face. (laughs) Um, But it's like that was kind of a bold thing to even introduce. And I know this was like. Hitchcock and horror and he was edgy and everything but it's like 1960 um you know to throw something out there like that um so in the final moment of the film an officer is bringing Norman a blanket and we hear mother's voice say thank you um and then we see Norman Anthony Perkins like sitting in the cell wrapped in the blanket and we hear the voiceover like his thoughts in mother's voice just kind of like narrating and, and basically condemning Norman like you know I can't believe he tried to pin it all on me I would never do anything and like I wouldn't even harm a fly um and that's like the the final the scene and at this whole time it's been kind of like closing in um tighter and tighter on Norman and then you get his face and that like one small smile which is just like that that image is is very um like memorable and recognizable from the film along with you know many others um and then the words the end appear over the image of a chain pulling a car out of the bog (laughs) so that is psycho did you think it was scary um no yeah i know i i i mean I actually watched it with my daughter. She's obviously never seen it, so it was kind of fun to see her watch something and take it in without being kind of spoiled in any way. Right. Uh, so she was watching it and having no idea mm-hmm. what was what was gonna come up, and she was like, "Wait, what? That what? he was her the whole time." <laughs> so she was having a 1960 experience. It felt really fun. So um, I think it's super entertaining. You can't. It's hard to argue with the master of that yeah Alfred Hitchcock like yeah I mean I think he was kind of a wasn't he kind of a scumbag in real life but like where his work was just just, untouchable he's kind of a jerk but um I mean 
I love Norman Bates. I love that whole relationship with the super controlling mother, which you assume that before her death, she was very super, super controlling with a thumb on him. Yeah. Uh, I would assume. And then maybe he was driven to this. Or, mm-hmm. uh, maybe he had this in him the whole time or whatever. Yeah. Um, and, and the whole story with, like, you are rooting for Marion and you, like, want her to be okay or to figure things out. And uh, I know also that at the time that she was very, very well-known as well. Janet Lee. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, like, her being... That was, like, the Drew Barrymore in Scream. <laughs> yeah, where everyone went to go see Scream and were like, wait, what the, what the hell? And so suddenly, she's on the movie posters. Yeah, she's, like, the most famous person in this movie. Yeah, so um, that was very jarring. Um, I mean, there's not much I can, I mean, I saw, say there's, you know, thesis and dissertation yeah. and classes. Yeah, there's classes. probably, like, college classes you can take about this film. They're 100%. <laughs> and who am I to say anything or what's, you know, but we're all talking about this movie and our love of it and, yeah. and how crazy it is or scary. Yeah, not claiming we've studied it. <laughs> and it's very non-expert opinion. <laughs> like everything we do. <laughs> yes. And um, I mean, I love the the scene where the, with the detective and him questioning Norman and that was really really uh, riveting and I was like just like super like oh man is he gonna slip like what's he gonna yeah. like, give away to him and then him trying to go sneak off and talk to mo- mother and then that uh, he like flies down the steps and it's um uh, it was very well done and then yeah and, you know we all know this yeah we're not telling you anything yeah. you, you don't know uh did you think it was scary um no um, and that's just, I mean, that's a product of our, the, the time period difference. I think, um, I look at Hitchcock's work as, you know, just like brilliant films. Um, but they don't, they don't leave me with a feeling of being frightened or being creeped out or, um, or even, you know, really in the moment because it's just, we've just been conditioned so differently, um, that it's really hard to, um, uh, replicate the mindset of somebody who would be experiencing this in the era that it was made. Um, but you know, it is, it's remarkable. It's enjoyable. It's, you know, incredible performances, um, from like basically every actor and actress in, in the movie. Um, so, and that's why it endures. That's why it's still part of, you know, cause like what's it's, 63 years ago yeah. it was made mm-hmm. um and it it has not been forgotten and it will not be forgotten no it won't i think that it's possibly my favorite what's that the imagery is amazing yeah so. yeah the the visuals like the shot of janet lee in the shower with her hair all wet the shot of norman at the end even the shot of the um the mummified face when mother's body spins around like all of those things are recognizable to everybody yeah. You know, you know what that means. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, like, I've seen, you know, I've seen quite a few Hitchcock movies and um, very, you know, generally he was about suspense. Mm-hmm. Um, there aren't a lot that tip into the world of possibly being considered a horror film. And this is one of those in that because I um, I've heard that it's uh, we talked about this with Texas Chainsaw Massacre, that um, some people might make an argument for Psycho being the first ever slasher film. Yeah. Um, and then, but it, that's not kind of generally accepted to be true because that wasn't Hitchcock's attitude toward it. 
um, that he believed it was, it was a psychological thriller, which it definitely is more that than anything else. Um, and then that leaves uh, Texas Chainsaw to be the first real slasher film in that genre. Um, but like The Birds, that's another one where um, it, it, in a lot of ways, like captured those scary, um, perilous, shocking, unsuspected moments, um, very much like Psycho did. Um, but then, you know, you have movies like Notorious and North by Northwest and Rear Window and Vertigo and Rope and Frenzy and like so many of his movies are are thrilling and suspenseful um and shocking but not you would never consider them a horror movie right yeah i think this one's the closest yeah definitely the closest so and it's you know we uh again like the secluded setting um you know i don't know how much it contributes to the um this this movie's ability to be scary um, because it doesn't really utilize the seclusion the same way the movie like The Strangers did or something um, because the people don't ever end up really being... I mean, Norman is trapped there in a sense, but his victims, they don't really get an opportunity to be trapped. <laughs> he kills them too quickly. Yeah. yeah. But it is, I mean, the the setting of the the house and the motel visually like out in the middle of nowhere on this empty road that the highway has left behind um is 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 creepy Mm -hmm. definitely yeah and all of the stuffed birds and things that like oh yeah what the fuck yeah don't don't taxidermy shit ugh (laughs) gross um did you have some fun facts i do have some i mean there's nothing really crazy but I did think it was interesting that the studio did not expect this to be any kind of success. (laughs) Uh, Despite uh, Hitchcock being a huge name, um, Paramount, Paramount, excuse me, was reluctant to finance it, and they viewed it as a sleazy horror movie. Okay. Um, So um, they deferred almost all of the rights to Hitchcock. Oh, wow. It's very Donald Sutherland of them. Yeah, he made a huge amount of money. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. obviously the success and because of this it was very very cheaply made so to save money he had to use the crew a lot of the crew from his tv show alfred hitchcock presents um like over the weekends (laughs) and he always all by day had been making movies on color but he decided to do black and white to save money oh wow god like such an influential decision made based off of money right um so i thought that was interesting and he said he um, Hitchcock said the film was made for about $800,000 and went on to make about $50 million Wow. box office. And then, um, then of course, there's a real-life serial killer influence with um, Ed Gein. Is it Gein? Yeah, it's Gein. Everybody calls him Ed Gein, but it is Gein. Hell Gein? I'm saying Hell Gein. <laughs> um, and then, um, yeah, so there, it was... Based on that and the book created by, um, written by Robert Block in his uh, original novel, and um, he he took his influence from Ed, Ed Gein and the uh, infatuation, infatuation with Mother, yeah, cause the, taxidermy, all that stuff. Yeah, the crimes that they committed were not at all similar, but the character mm-hmm. was. Yeah. Also, it, I thought it was interesting because this is one of my favorite movies, um, from like for like thriller suspense and it was a remake the one that i really really love mm-hmm. it's uh called la Di- diabolique it was a french movie mm-hmm. it came out in 55 
and um, it's about uh, the a thriller about two men who plan to murder um, the husband of um, an, an abusive lo- um, husband. Okay. It's like two lovers kind of can. Okay. Firing. Yeah, yeah. That's and a Carrie Underwood song too. It's very, very. <laughs> so I, I see, um, It's called it, two, two, two black limousines. I, <laughs> so, um, yeah, that was really amazing, and so I, I suggest, yeah, watch that one because it was remade in the nineties. Mm-hmm. It was really, really good. And then let's see. I'm trying to go through my pages. <laughs> I'm glad I highlight the stuff. Uh, Such a teacher. I know. Uh, Hitchcock had to be convinced to use the iconic music. Hmm. He didn't want any music playing during different parts of the the film, but then the composer, Bernard Herrmann, um, kind of helped, you know, win him over. Yeah. He's like, but what if I do this? Re, 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 re. (laughs) That sounds great. (laughs) Um, Also, Hitchcock's daughter makes an appearance in the film she plays uh, caroline who is um the other secretary with um, oh my god that woman that character is so obnoxious teddy teddy called me mother called to see if teddy called i know and he probably didn't come talk to me on account of my wedding he must have seen my wedding ring shut up caroline nobody likes you Um, so she's in that. I thought it was kind of interesting. Yeah, I didn't know that, but now that I'm picturing her face, I'm like, yeah, I totally <laughs> see her being Hitchcock's daughter. Um, Hitchcock allowed the actors more, um, kind of, they allow, he allowed them more, um... Creative, creative control. control. Yeah. Where they could improvise. Which I think wasn't usually his Not M.O., him. yeah. Right, so I thought that was kind of cool. And then, oh, what am I finding? Oh, and then the sequence of the... The murder sequence of Mary and her death mm-hmm. in the book uh, ended up with her being decapitated. Oh, my. And obviously Hitchcock was like, yeah, we can't cut off Janelle's head. And also, we can't afford that. <laughs> and this is kind of a silly little little tidbit. The flushing of the toilet in the movie was the first time that's ever happened on film. That's amazing. And it didn't even go successfully because one of the pieces of paper didn't flush. I know. She like, threw it on the floor. She's like, oh, what's happening? Um, let's. And then, um, oh, I thought this is kind of interesting because Hitchcock kind of, um, and this is from a list I got online. I didn't obviously come up with any of this stuff. <laughs> That'd be funny if you did just invent it all. I did not. You're like, this This woman is Hitchcock's daughter. No, she's not. <laughs> just like John Carpenter is dead. Yep. So <laughs> Long live John Carpenter. <laughs> I made that laugh so much. I made myself laugh so much. Um, Hitchcock wanted to identify with Norman with the character mm-hmm. and um, Hitchcock he faced the challenge to um, make the movie audience kind of um, care about him mm-hmm. so then after the death of Marion for the audience to transfer their uh, affection from Marion to Norman the um, this is what was done so the screenwriter Stefano wrote a scene who was uh, I can't remember who he was like a screenwriter or something um, where Norman is methodically cleaning up the murder scene following by the sequence where he dumps the car in the bog. Mm-hmm. And um, so for a little bit of time, the car stops going down. Right. And you see his face. And um, it's then it gets um, kind of, then it submerges. So it's impossible as the audience to watch and not feel apprehensive on behalf of Norman. 
Yeah. So it's just kind of like, oh, okay, so who are you rooting for? Yeah. And suddenly you're kind of like, wait, why do I want him to get away with this? Yeah. It makes you aware of your allegiance. Yeah. Yeah. So I thought that was kind of interesting because I like hadn't even really noticed that I did feel kind of anxious mm-hmm. when I was watching this. Yeah. Like, oh, is this going to go into the blog or not? Oh, you know. Like, <laughs> you were being manipulated by the master. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, that's okay. It happens to the best of us. It's okay. That's what I'm here for. So like watch for real. And be manipulated. Yeah. I'm so scared and or annoyed about aspic and how uh, and how Norman's eating candy and can't gorn and I'm like, who even eats that for like When when was the last time you saw a dentist? Um yeah. yeah, and so I know that there is a psycho too. I've never seen it. It was made in the eighties. Um, I have no idea what it's about. Um, however, the 1998 remake is one that I had seen years and years ago, hilariously, because after Swingers, my husband was a big Vince Vaughn fan. <laughs> um, my face is Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. So here's the thing about the, this is the 1998 remake of Psycho. Like when we, when I say remake, it's, it is a word for word, shot for shot recreation of the original movie. They used the original script. Like when they sent it to some of the actors, they were like, oh, you sent us the wrong script. This is the script for the 1960 movie. They're like, yeah, that's what we're using. Mm-hmm. It is exactly the same. Um, and so in that way, like I, you know, tried to watch them back to back yesterday and I was like, yeah, but I just watched this. Like I just watched these exact words and, um, the, they really put together a who's who for the cast for the remake and Hesh plays Marion Crane. Uh, Vince Vaughn plays Norman Bates. Um, Sam's character is played by Viggo Mortensen. Mm-hmm. Um, Julianne Moore plays the sister Lila. Um, and then detective Arbogast is William H. Macy. Right. You can't go wrong with William H. Macy. Um, And the whole thing was directed by Gus Van Sant. And it was his choice and his intention to exactly recreate Hitchcock's movie. And some people shit all over that. Some people kind of really saw where he was coming from and what he was trying to achieve and had a little admiration for it. Um, Watching the movie, especially if you know the original, like obviously you would never watch this as a substitute for the original. But if you know the original, it's it's interesting from a filmmaking perspective to then watch the remake and see what can still remain different um, even if you're making the movie exactly the same, like what, um, how differently a character can present the exact same line in the exact same moment in the course of a conversation and, and make it come across different or carry a different meaning. Um, visually, it's still very, it kind of reads as almost as if it still took place in 1960, even though it's supposed to take place in modern day. Um, and so I, I, as I started like watching it and everything, I was like, I don't know if I can finish this whole thing. Um, <laughs> but there were a couple of elements that were not identical. Um, and one of the ones that was extremely memorable for me the first time that I watched it back in the, you know, well, I guess it would probably would have been the early 2000s when I saw it for the first time, is the point where in the original, when Norman just looks through the peephole a little bit while Marion takes her blouse off. Yeah. Um, exactly yeah. And then he recovers up the hole. Well, our Vince Vaughn's Norman takes it down, watches her undress and jerks off. That's a little masturbation. 
Yeah, and not subtle. Not subtle at all. <laughs> yeah, and there's some slapping and all of that good stuff. Um, so that was a little addition where I, I kind of tried to look and see if Gun- Gus Van Sant had ever articulated a reason for at introducing that. Um, but I was kind of worried about my browser history, like my search history. So masturbation. Right. Gus Van Sant, Vince Vaughn, masturbate choices. <laughs> um, I was like, maybe not. Um, but the other thing that I really liked um, that was one element that was different. So at the beginning, when um, Marion is asking her boss for permission to go home after she takes the money to the bank because she has a headache um, and the uh, smarmy client that's there is like, oh, you should go to Las Vegas. It's the um, like best. Oh, you should take a vacation in Las Vegas playground of the world. Um, and Marion says, thank you, but I think I'll spend this weekend in bed. And she leaves um, in the remake. Then the shithead responds with only playground to beat Las Vegas. And that was actually a line that Hitchcock wanted to put in the original and the censors wouldn't allow it. So Van Sant included it in this one because Hitchcock wanted it in the original. Um, but yeah, aside from that, it's it's mirrors the original. And so it's it's kind of interesting. I, you know, it's like it's not it's it's not as good as the original. I wouldn't say it's bad. I would say that it's a it was an exercise almost like it was an interesting filmmaking exercise to be like, well, let's look and see what happens if we take something this recognizable, this brilliantly created, and we just try and do it again with the utmost respect and diligence. And, you know, what what comes of it? Like, how do the people perform it differently? How does it land differently? Um, so I, th- I think it's interesting. It's not good, um, but I st- I kind of feel like I would say it's worth watching. If you're a big fan of the original, just for the sake of being able to go like, oh, huh, okay. <laughs> I know it was, a com- it was a commercial failure. Yeah, no, yeah, and, and critical failure as well. Yeah, it was not n- not a successful venture for Mr. Van Sant. Yeah, and I think the casting, honestly, for Vince Vaughn was not... Yeah, well, evidently, I I don't know if this was something that people just thought that they should have done or if it was something they were actually considering was flipping him and Viggo Mortensen. Like Viggo Mortensen would have been Norman and Vince Vaughn would have been Sam. And I was like, and they're like, well, because Viggo Mortensen could play evil better. And I'm like, yes, but Norman wasn't evil. The key to Norman's character was his innocence and his like seemingly genuine vulnerability. Exactly. And so I'm like, if if Vince Vaughn failed at anything, it was being too creepy from the get go. Like he wasn't able to nail that genuine, tender innocence that made like you said, that made you feel empathy for him and concern for him and wanting the best for him. Um, And then seeing like, oh, he's a victim of his mother, like that whole right, because the whole idea was to convince you that he was the victim until the very end when they reveal that he's the villain. Yeah. Like, you think he's the the victim as in, like, he has to clean up after his mother's yeah. like, insanity. And yeah. And he loves her so much, he's willing to do it. Yeah. And lie for her. And, mm-hmm. you know, do whatever he can to protect her. And she's put him in this spot. Mm-hmm. And then you find out that's not the case. Nope. So. But, yeah, so, like, that's, if there was anything wrong with Vince Vaughn's character it's just i mean it's just his his eyes alone are creepy yeah (laughs) he could be like not speaking at all and that's um there's the show where it's played by i can't remember the actor's name who played norman and he 
you feel very sad for him. And yeah. He's like a very sweet boyish face and he's very recognizable. Freddie Highmore. Yeah. I was like, I knew it was in there. Freddie Highmore. He has a show that's like a doctor now. Yeah. And he was the new Charlie in the in the Johnny Depp um Willy Wonka. Like he is he's darling. And he played sweet face. um the Finding Neverland or whatever the one where Johnny Depp played uh, Barry, the author of Peter Pan, he was in that one as well. Yeah, he has a sweet, precious little face yeah. in his little British accent. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, he Vera Farmiga plays his mother. Plays Norma. Yeah, um, yeah. That that show was spectacular, and it was because I looked it up. It was um, the final season. I can't remember if it was season six, episode five, or season five, episode six. Um, the title of the episode is Marion, and it addresses the events from the Psycho movie. Mm-hmm. And Marion Crane is played by Rihanna. Interesting. Um, But yeah, that that movie or I mean, that show was so incredibly enjoyable and so interesting because, you know, the the story left a lot like it. Well, there was this stuff that happened, you know, before and then maybe like these things that happened after. But it left a lot of potential to like flush it out. Yeah. Like how how did Norman get to be Norman? How did he get here? And they do explain it a little bit at the end of the movie, but just kind of cursorily. And so that left it wide open for them. Like, well, we're going to make a TV show starting with him as a high school student and show you how he got there. How did mother get to this? Right. Well, and even like on that show, they show him like getting into taxidermy for the first time. Like, how did that happen? Why did he start doing that? Like, it's it's really, really well done. And it's got Olivia Cook in it. Yeah. Um, and then uh, I think there was a couple of other. Oh, my gosh. You should. Uh, yeah. I do want to revisit it. Yeah. Definitely. Because it's so ooky, spooky, weird. Mm hmm. It seems like it's just for me. Yeah. <laughs> I just have to finish Outlander a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> it's on the list. It's on the list, yeah. Yeah. Um, so I would say the the one last thing that I wanted to share, and this is a personal anecdote, um, the Psycho House at Universal Studios has long been a um, highlight of the tram tour ride. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, so like the tra- you ride the tram around Universal Studios and Jaws comes out and jumps at you and all this bullshit. And at one point you drive past the Psycho House up on the hill. Um, and I this I think it's the only time I've ever been to Universal Studios on my senior trip at the end of high school. And we took the tram tour. And when we were driving past the Psycho House, this was um, not long after they were filming Jim Carrey's The Grinch movie. And they had actually constructed Whoville. In like right adjacent to where the the Bates house was. So it's in the exact same part of the lot at the studios. Um, and so you had like the house up here and then you had Whoville like, down in the corner. Um, and our tram tour guide tells us this story that while um, the Grinch was being filmed, there was one day when Jim Carrey was on break, went into wardrobe, put on a dress and a wig, hid somewhere. And then when the tram ride came back, jumped onto the roof of the tram, screaming like he was Mrs. Bates and was attacking the tram riders. I was like, that's just delightful. I mean, how much extra would you pay for that (laughs) experience? Like best tram ride ever. I know exactly what you're talking about because we did the, um, we went to Universal Horror Nights mm-hmm. and yeah. a few years ago, and they had one. It was The Purge, mm-hmm. and it was had you took a tram over to that whole area where it's like they tour, mm-hmm. but they made it all like The Purge. Yeah. So <laughs> all the people with like bats and like the weird masks mm-hmm. and stuff like hanging out, like 
looking menacingly um, around, hanging around the porch of the the um, psycho house. Wow. And then there was like half of a crashed plane. It was really cool. Yeah. But there were all these like zombie who's running around. <laughs> Cindy Lou who zombie. <laughs> yeah, it was super cool. Yeah. That's fun. Yeah. So yeah, like psycho is just a part of our fabric. It's part of our na- it. national fabric. And um, I'm glad I got to share it with Charlotte. She, I was like, I know it's black and white. Please yeah. have an open mind. She's like, yeah, black and white. And um, she watched it with me. And I was like, so what do you think? She's like, oh, it was good. Yeah. Was you just like, need to get your foot in the door with that black and white stuff. Yeah. Because you can't just rule it all. You lose yeah. out on so many things that are just like. Well done. But for kids, that, that's a real thing. Because, like, for us, when I was growing up, the first black and white film that my parents were like, no, you're sitting down and you're watching this was Arsenic and Old Lace. Mm-hmm. And we thought it was hilarious. Yeah. And so anytime after that, when they were, like, trying to put on a black, like, they're trying to put on Young Frankenstein, and we're like, black and white, and they're like, remember Arsenic and Old Lace? And we're like, all right. Oh, my God, this movie's amazing. But, yeah, so you just need to get that little toehold in of the black and white films. In 2023. Yeah. Hey, 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 this is, yeah. hey, come on. And then you're like, listen, it's called Schindler's List. You're going to love it. <laughs> and they're like, what? <laughs> Why am we watching this? Um, but like, I was going to say, Parent Corner, you know, 13, 12 and up. Totally benign. It's fine. Yeah. It won't, it won't scare them. It's not problematic. Um, they, they, you know, like sometimes we say they might be bored. But not so with this. It's not, um, I, you, they could, they might find it interesting enough to... To yeah. stick with it. Charlotte stuck with it. She yeah. watched it all and was like, oh, that's, okay. that's pretty good. Yeah. So I'm like, it means, I gave her a little bit of history of Alf, uh, Alfred Hitchcock, who he was. And oh, yeah. That's like, a good thing a deal to front load on, yeah. Yeah, to say, like, listen, you may be like, this is kind of boring, but he is a ma- he was a master at suspense yeah. and uh, thriller kind of movies, and he was very, very Yeah, he fun. created this genre. He called him, like, the godfather <laughs> of this, yeah. this genre. Mm-hmm. Do it for your mother. Like, come on. Do it for mother. Yeah, do it for mother. <laughs> um, so, good chats. I love talking about this. I watch all of his movies. Yeah, I watched a couple, like I just mentioned them um, um, for the first time during COVID because um, I had a book that one of my students had given me about movies that were based on real life crimes. And for the most part, I had already seen all of the movies mentioned in the book, except the some of the oldest ones. And one of them was Rope, which was the um, Leopold and Loeb murders. Uh-huh. Hitchcock made, yeah. the, made the movie Rope about that. And Jimmy Stewart's in it. Yeah. Yeah. So you've got like the two kids and they're hosting a dinner party and the body of the person that they've killed is like in a trunk at the dinner party. Yeah, they're a bunch of fancy little jerks. Yeah. And like one of them is totally getting off on like serving dinner on top of where this body's hidden and the other one's freaking out. And then you have Jimmy Stewart's character come in as like a former mentor of theirs. And he's like, you know, kind of uncracking the code or whatever um and then the other one was called frenzy um and i can't i can't remember what um what it was a what crime it was based on but it was one of his latest movies and it was actually very um graphic sexually um but also i mean it came out in like the 70s and so time wise you know obviously film and what people showed in film had changed dramatically from when he shot the shower scene in psycho to what he was shooting in frenzy um so it, it felt and it was in color um 
like felt very different from his other films that I had seen, um, but kind of in a good way. It was really interesting. Yeah, yeah. I might show Charlotte uh, the birds. Yep. Or uh, Rear Window, which I love. Yeah, I started. The Birds was the first quote unquote scary movie I ever showed Grace, thinking it was a safe one, and she fucking hates birds. <laughs> and now it is extended to she's afraid of anything with wings, including butterflies. Aww. I'm like, that's just stupid. Well, that's what a little. <laughs> Blame it on the mother. Yep, it's always mom's fault. So, next time we are, since we are done with secluded settings. Yes, bye bye summer. Bye. Single tear. Uh, yeah. Followed by many, many tears. <laughs> we're going to talk about Silence of the Lambs. I mean, talk about, will we be using the word iconic? I think so. I think so. <laughs> I'm thinking about Buffalo Bill dancing. Crying, crying. Yeah, no, that's. This this is going to be a really, really fun conversation, you know, and it's like if you haven't seen this movie, what are you even doing? There's there are three movies in history that have won all top five Oscars. And this is one of them. And yeah. the, like, you know, it happened one night came, you know, came out in a year where like three movies total came out. So it was like competition was very different. And then one flew, flew over the cuckoo's nest is the other one um, that it was like best actor, best director, best Supporting actor, best supporting actress, and best film. Was that five? However many it was. But all the like top Oscars. It's only happened three times ever, people, and this is one of them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, anyway. Yeah, check it out, and we'll uh, talk to you next time. Bye.